Our scripture reading today is from Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. Beware of false prophets, for they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or fig from thist- figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. This is the word of the Lord. Praise, Praise be, to, be Christ. to Christ. Thanks again, Christopher. So, um, Sermon on the Mount, like I said, we're, we're, we're approaching the finish line uh, here in these next few weeks. And if you've been reading ahead, you may have noticed that it starts to get really, really heavy uh, toward the end. There are actually four different sections. Uh, you know, Paul Lim started last week with, with uh, the teaching about the narrow and broad paths. Um, but there are four sections that um, provide a contrast, each of those four sections uh, of Jesus' teaching here. Uh, and these contrasts are all there to help us discern the difference between healthy and destructive, the difference between truth and error, the difference between false and authentic. And, um, you know, like I said, Paul Lim taught about the two gates, the narrow gate that leads to life, uh, and, and then also the broad gate that leads to death and destruction. Uh, and uh, next week, there's going to be a section we're going to talk about uh, which focuses on two different kinds of disciples. One is false, one is true, one is inside the kingdom and family of God, one is on the outside. And then the final uh, teaching from Jesus is going to be about the two foundations, two houses, Jesus says. One is built on the sand, and so when the storms of life come, it will collapse uh, to destruction. And then there's another house that's built on a foundation of rock, and and, uh, it is not susceptible or vulnerable to the storm that is to come, the storm being the final judgment. Uh, and so, Jesus gets really heavy and, 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 and thick uh, and super serious uh, here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And, um, and today, uh, His super seriousness comes across in His teaching about two different kinds of prophets or preachers or Bible teachers. Uh, one is the group that He would call the true prophets, and the other is the group that He would call the false prophets. And, and what he's doing in all four of these sections really is he is messing with modern pluralistic sensibilities. Because what Jesus is unequivocally doing is he's saying there are some people in the world who are wrong. There are people, and he says it fiercely, fiercely and forcefully, there are people in the world who are wrong. And the wrong path is a path that leads to devastation, to destruction, It delivers the opposite of what it promises. And it's as if Jesus is saying with the repetition, because in the Bible, repetition means emphasis. If you want to find exclamation points in the Bible, you look for where the Bible repeats itself, because that's the exclamation point. And so the repetition alone is Jesus coming to us and saying, I am dead serious about this. You do not want to miss the things that I'm talking about right now, because your life, your future 
depends on it. And his strategy in all four instances is to help us spot a counterfeit by helping us become so familiar with the real thing. It's just like money. You know, they, they train people who are, are, you know, trained to spot a counterfeit. The way that they train them is to, 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 you know, have them get to know a real dollar bill so well that, that, that they know a counterfeit from a mile away. It's the same with wine tasting, right? You wine connoisseurs, you wine country people. Um, you, can, you can tell the difference between three, ju- three buck chuck and a bottle of Camus just like that. All it takes is a little drop on your tongue. You know because your palate has been trained to discern between the good stuff and the cheap stuff. And so what I like to do is, is sort of uh, follow Jesus' teaching about true and false prophets here uh, under, under three headings, and, and those headings are two extremes, a fierce warning, and the way to spot a counterfeit. And so, so we'll start with the two extremes. And uh, I'm going to summarize a little bit first, because up to now, the main group of people that Jesus has been coming down hard on would be the right-leaners. Uh, and I'm not talking about politics. I'm talking about, I'm, I'm talking about conservative religious morality. And that group is the Pharisees. They are the stern moralists, the rule keepers, and the rule imposers. That's what the Pharisees are presented as in the New Testament and also in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, you may remember a couple of, uh, of weeks ago, talked about how, you know, when Moses descended from Mount Sinai, uh, in the name of the Lord, he brought down from that mountain to the nation of Israel ten laws. We know them as the, the Ten Commandments. And what the Pharisees did was they took those ten laws and turned them into 613. Okay, so that, that was sort of what a Pharisee did. The, the, the Pharisee, uh, at least they thought, they, they were… They were, they were they were, they were uh, you know, essentially clamping down and, and, and becoming more narrow than the Scriptures themselves. And what Jesus calls this kind of teaching and this kind of leader, it's right there in verse 17, it's a diseased tree. And how you, the way you know it's a de- diseased tree is it produces bad fruit. It says it's a banana tree, right? But it pr- produces a pumpkin instead. And it's a diseased pumpkin at that. And the bad fruit that, that proceeded from the Pharisees, one was self-importance and superiority. You see this in Luke 18, uh, verses 9 through 14, where Jesus tells this parable of a Pharisee and a tax collector. And Jesus says, you know, some are trusting in themselves that they are righteous and looking down on others with contempt. And you see a Pharisee praying, you know, thank you, my God, that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, tax collectors. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. Look at how superior I am. Look at how important I am because of how pious I am. The other thing the Pharisees were known as, and this or known for, and this was also a part of the bad fruit that their lives produced, was they imposed heavy law burdens, heavy religious oppressive burdens on other people's backs but it says in Matthew 23 that they never lifted a finger to help the people that they were imposing those laws upon. And lastly, they were grumps. They were grumpy people. And that is a sign of bad fruit. You ever meet a grumpy Christian? It's, it's bad fruit. It's not authentic. It's not truly coming from the tree, the healthy tree at least. You know, Steinbeck's uh, East of Eden, in there, he, if you've read it, 
you literature people, he describes a woman, he says, with a code of morals that pinned down and beat the brains out of nearly everything that was pleasant to do. That's also a good description of the moralist, of the stern moralist. That's a false prophet right there. But the second extreme is actually his main focus here. And it, it, it would be the extreme that was um, expressed by another group called the Sadducees. They were more like the secular liberals, so to speak. And instead of expanding 10 laws into 613, they reduced, as it were, 10 laws into one. And that one law was what you could call the law of tolerance. So, to the right of God, falsehood is revealed by excessive narrowness. And then to the left of God, falsehood is revealed through excessive broadness or expansiveness or permissiveness or, as we call it, tolerance. And both are echoes of things that went on in the Garden of Eden. Eve leaned to the right of God, because what did God say? If you eat the forbidden fruit, you will surely die. But then when Eve was echoing what she heard God say, she said, God said, you shall not eat the fruit or touch it, or you will surely die. But never, God never said, don't touch it. All He said was, don't eat it. And then to the left of God, you've got the serpent, right, who comes to Eve and Adam and says, did God really say? Is God really limiting you in that way? Is He really restricting your options in that way? Come on, God's not like that. Write your own truth. Forge your own path. Follow your own heart. God wouldn't want to limit you in this way. He wants you to be creative. He wants you to be free. The irony is He's putting them both in bondage by making a more expansive, you know, painting a more expansive picture, presumably, of truth and beauty and goodness. And so, the broad road, which is what Jesus focuses on chiefly when He talks about false prophets here, I think, assumes that there are many pathways. All of them lead to the same place, to the same God, to the same everlasting life, to the same grace and forgiveness, to the same love. All roads lead to the same place. This whole idea of judgment, it's antiquated, it's yesterday, it's culturally regressive, it's irrelevant to today because we're progressed, enlightened people. And so, all this talk about judgment, this is just primitive stuff. The truth says, live and let live, follow your heart, do whatever makes you happy. You be you. You determine what your truth is, and let me tell you about my truth. Your truth, my truth, they're both true, they're both good. Martin Lloyd-Jones, you know, the great Welsh preacher, put it this way as he was sort of reflecting on this passage in particular. He said, the false prophet never disturbs. This is one of the ways that you can spot a false prophet. The false prophet never disturbs. They never get in your face. They never make you feel uncomfortable. He or she is always harmless and nice, always invariably attractive. Jeremiah, the Old Testament prophet, um, sort of ruminated on these things. Um, you know, the condition of things in Israel was that the, the people of Israel at this point in time were sort of leaning Sadducee. 
right? They, they were very, you know, sort of open-minded, pluralistic about religion, and, and the Canaanite religions were, were, you know, sort of put on equal level with, with the religion of Yahweh, right? If you want to follow Baal, if you want to follow Molech, if you want to follow Yahweh, you know, your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, follow your heart, follow your dreams, you be you, do whatever makes you happy. And, and, and there were all these prophets that were saying, right on, you know, you be you, follow your heart, pick your God, there's so many, all of them lead to the same place. And then God sends Jeremiah into this picture as a lone voice And he says this to the nation of Israel, the false prophets are false. They're filling you with vain hopes. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no evil shall come upon you. Likewise, God complains through Jeremiah They have healed the wound of my people lightly, these false prophets have, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Bonhoeffer called it cheap grace. In the cost of discipleship, he wrote, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. Loose preaching is like loose parenting. It produces entitled brats who become miserable adults. And this law of tolerance, too, here's the twist to this, too. Here's why it's so deceptive. This law of tolerance is actually its own version of the worst kind of fundamentalism. Everybody's a fundamentalist, by the way. Everybody organizes their life. Everybody organizes their worldview, their way of seeing things, their, you know, vision of right and wrong and truth and beauty and that sort of thing. Everybody organizes their life around a set of fundamentals. And, 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 and if your religion or your, your view of religion, if the fundamental that your religion or your view of life or your philosophy of life is centered upon is tolerance, 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 you have to understand that to be logically consistent, you, you, you need to at least admit that to, to say there's not, no such thing as an absolute truth is to make an absolute truth statement. You see? To say that the only valid religious viewpoint is that all viewpoints are valid is to invalidate the viewpoint of most major world religions. Because every major world religion believes that its own view of life and truth and beauty and goodness in God is superior. And you also put yourself in a conundrum if you're more of the the, the Sadducee, the the open-minded Sadducee. You put yourself in a conundrum because you can't criticize Hitler coming from your perspective. You know, see, Hitler, if, if you've, you know, studied World War II, if, if you, understand, you know anything about Hitler, you know that Hitler thought he was on a mission from God when he was seeking to exterminate the Jews. You know, Nazism has deeply religious roots, just like the alt-right movement does. Deeply religious roots. And and you have to admit, if you're going to be logically consistent, if you're going to have any intellectual integrity, you have to admit 
that if your prevailing worldview is, is that there is no such thing as absolute truth, you're entitled to your truth just as I'm entitled to my truth, then you have to acknowledge that you have zero basis for moral outrage about anything. You have no right to criticize Hitler if this is truly your worldview. Okay, that's an extreme, that's an extreme example. Okay, let's go with something less extreme. This worldview that the false prophets are, are promoting says that you should not proselytize. You should not talk to another person as if your beliefs are superior to theirs. But in saying that, you are declaring that your viewpoint is superior to somebody else. You see the inconsistency here? And, and, and the final conundrum here is this. If, like the false prophets that Jeremiah addressed, that Jesus is addressing, if, like the false prophets, I want to say there is no judgment, that means I'm passing judgment on Jesus Christ, and I'm not sure I want to do that. Because Jesus Christ spoke more about judgment than He did about love in heaven and forgiveness. It's not that love and heaven and forgiveness aren't significant things. That's the trajectory that Jesus wants us to be headed toward. But if you speak against the whole idea of judgment, you're speaking against Jesus yourself. You just have to own that. You know, Eugene Peterson sort of summarized it this way, and this is sort of another test. He said, don't be impressed with charisma look for character. You know, in other words, don't, don't think that just because somebody appears to be extraordinary and winsome and, you know, popular, that, that they're on to something. You know, extraordinary is not what you want to go for. You, what you want to look for is faithfulness in the ordinary. That's the sign of a true prophet. That's the sign of a true leader. You could call it the character test. Is the fruit of the Spirit there of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? And then there's the doctrinal test. Is it aligned with Scripture? Plain and simple. Have you been staring at the, at the dollar bill, at the authentic dollar bill for so long that you can spot the counterfeit like that? Even in the, the minutest detail, you can spot the counterfeit because you've been staring at the real thing for so long. I mean, you can, you can sense the urgency, I hope, in my voice. Learn Scripture. Learn Scripture. Learn Scripture. Learn Scripture. And the parts of Scripture you should be learning the most are the ones that you don't underline when you read them, which, which is going to be the subject of a, in a week or two, uh, chiefly. But two extremes. Too far to the right of Jesus, too far to the left of Jesus, you lose Jesus. There's a fierce warning as well, that, 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 that broad path teaching, your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, follow your heart, follow your dreams, and that's how you'll find your truth. It actually has real potential to wreck a human soul, to wreck, destroy, to crash and burn a human soul. Remember, Jesus repeats Himself in, in four different examples for emphasis here. It is His exclamation point in the, in, at the end of, of, of the greatest sermon that's ever been preached and the truest sermon that's ever been preached. 
And He's coming to us to cut us, not, not, not as with a sword, but as with a scalpel. Because you remember, Jesus refers to Himself as a physician, and He's no less a physician in these words than He is in His words about love and heaven and those sorts of things and forgiveness and grace. You know, the emphasis for a physician is what? Health, either the preservation or the restoration of health. And that is what Jesus is after here when He talks about a healthy tree that is known by its fruit. Health, health, health. That's what we're after. You know, even when we look at the Bible and the Bible talks about sound doctrine, the Greek word there uh, is, you know, for sound, the, the, the original meaning of that word is healthy healthy. Scripture is after, Jesus is after our health. So, imagine you discover a lump underneath your armpit, and you go in to, you know, visit with a doctor, and you get the x-rays, you get MRIs, or whatever the technology is you're supposed to use, uh, healthcare professionals, I'm not sure uh, which, um, but the doctor discovers a tumor in the pathology report, and um, the doctor discovers a malignancy, in fact. It's not benign. But then the doctor comes in in the follow-up meeting and says to you as the patient, good news, it's just a callus. It's just a callus. It's just a cosmetic thing. Don't worry about it. Go on. Live your life. Peace. Peace. When there is no peace. You know, if, if a doctor sees what the doctor sees on the pathology report and then comes and gives that report to the patient, there are three possibilities. Either the doctor is evil, and the doctor knows that you've got something in you that would kill you, and, and, and he's withholding or she's withholding that information from you. Or, option two, the doctor is unqualified and doesn't know how to read an x-ray and needs to go back to medical school. Or, the doctor is a coward. That's the third option. Doesn't want things to be socially awkward just hates to make people cry, just hates to deliver bad news, wants to be the life of the party. And so, when somebody standing in my shoes, let's say, or somebody writing books about spiritual things, or somebody writing blog posts about spiritual things, or teaching at seminars and conferences about spiritual things, withholds the hard truths, and says, peace, peace, when there is no peace, here's the message. Jesus will prosecute you for spiritual malpractice. You will be prosecuted. It's a terrifying thing. And, and lest we, we struggle with this fear, well, we don't want to ruffle feathers, we don't want to disrupt the apple cart, consider these words from atheist comedian, Pen Gillette, for those of us who are reluctant to be truth people, we just want to be grace people. Pen Gillette said this, I have always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this, because it would make it socially awkward? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you, 
and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And heaven and hell, says Pendulette, is more important than that. Food for thought. Is it love? Is it love to withhold the hard truths when Jesus put an exclamation point behind them four times? And this is where we also need to start you know, cultivating the art of being suspicious whenever we are encountered with a revisionist theology, whenever we're encountered with a new take on Scripture that contradicts the consensus of the worldwide church at all times, at all places, until this time in our little culture right now. You know, take this example, for instance, that Jesus is, is hanging His hat on, the whole the whole notion of, of judgment for those who reject the message of the gospel and who reject the trajectory of Christ. You know, the message, rethink judgment, is being taught behind pulpits in, in the particularly white Western 21st century hemisphere right now. Rethink judgment. Rethink hell. God couldn't be like that. God isn't an oppressor. He's not a bully like that. Well, of course he's not a bully. Of course he's not an oppressor. But his justice is just as much one of his attributes as his love is. There's no superior attribute. All the attributes of God are equal in their force and in their beauty. And what we fail to understand, it. it it's an interpretive problem. It's, it's not a God problem. And, and so this whole notion, you know, this happened to Keith, Keith Getty, um, friend of our community, uh, a couple of years ago when, when a, a, a denomination claiming to identify as Christian wanted to take out of his hymn in Christ alone the words, the wrath of God was satisfied, you know, on that cross where Jesus died, the wrath. Can we just can we call it the love of God? Can we say the love of God was satisfied? No, the cross was there because to satisfy the wrath of God. That's what Scripture says. You know, so be suspicious of revisionist theology. And it goes both ways, by the way. I mean, take, take the sexuality conversation, right? That's like the big subject right now. Inside the church and outside the church, that's what everybody's talking about. It is just as much a, 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 a false prophet message to adopt a leave-it-to-beaver picture of, of sexuality, where you've got a married couple, but they sleep in the same room in separate beds. That, that's just as insidious, and that is just as far from Christ as, as other, you know, sort of retakes on, on, on what, what, you know, God-sanctioned sexuality might look like, you know, essentially taking adopting a more libertine approach to sexuality. You know, leave it to Beaver, way too conservative for Jesus, modern-day 21st century orientation towards sexuality, way too progressive for Jesus. You know, both are false. Both, you know, are subject to, to the judgment of the Proverbs that says there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. 
You know, and of course we can say, well, of course they were wrong in the Leave it to Beaver's 50s. I mean, we've, we've progressed. We're 20, 21st century people. Well, who's to say? Who's to say that because you are 21st century, you have progressed? I mean, you look all around the world. You look at the global consensus of, of, of the Church of Jesus Christ that has studied the, the Scriptures carefully for centuries. Who's to say that you in the White West have finally become the enlightened ones while everybody else has gotten it wrong? It's a dangerous game to play. It's, it's a Thomas Jefferson approach to the Scriptures. This is what one of our founding fathers did. In his words, he took the Bible and separated the diamonds from the dunghills. And what Jefferson did, and many of you know this, you're historians, he took a pair of scissors and he removed the miracles and he removed all of the things that he judged in the Bible to be irrational, that didn't make sense to him. Here's a quote, direct quote from Thomas Jefferson about that practice of, 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 of his. He says, I have selected in the Bible and embrace in the Bible only those passages that seem to me to be authentic accounts and sayings of Jesus. And so a false prophet is going to mess with the truth of God. You're either going to add to it or you're going to subtract from it. Both are equally dangerous. Jesus is putting his exclamation point on that fact here. And you, you look even at the, the last chapters of the Bible, right toward the very end of Revelation, it says anybody who adds to or takes away from the words that are written in this book will be subject to the judgments therein. Or like Luther, you know, when he talked about the drunk man on the horse, the drunk man is always falling to the left or the right. You know, and you, you, bones get broken and lives get destroyed either way when you fall off of a horse. And so this is, this is a call, an urgent call to stay on the horse. And we all need to be revisionists. Don't hear me wrong. I mean, Martin Luther and, and you know, Calvin and Melanchthon and Knox and all, all of those, you know, leaders were, were absolutely right in calling the church to reform. But what, what they did was they didn't call the church out of Scripture. They called the church back into Scripture, and that's where the Protestant Reformation was born. Of course we need to be reformationists and revisionists. I mean, we, we got slavery wrong for centuries, at least certain parts of the culture. There's never, never been an African-American church that I know of that thought slavery was right and biblical. So it never was the global consensus of the church that slavery was a good thing. But there were segments of the church who benefited personally and financially from slavery who finally realized, wait, abolition is a right thing. It's the right thing. We need, to, we need to correct this, right? Not in spite of what the Scriptures say, but because of what the Scriptures say. So it's not a knock on revisionist. But, but, but the moment we depart, the, the moment that our new theology looks more like popular culture than it looks like what the Scriptures teach is the moment we need to, you know, set the alarms off. That's the point. You know, we don't, we don't come to the Scriptures in order to stand on the Bible. We, we stand under the Bible. We don't adopt an approach to, 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 to revise the Bible, you know, as, as Jefferson said, because there are certain passages that seem to us to be inauthentic accounts and sayings of Jesus because they don't make sense to us or they seem too hard. No, we stand under the Word of God so that it will revise us, so that it will edit us. And finally, very quickly as we head to the table, the way to spot a counterfeit, again, it's very simple. Get to know the real thing. Learn the Scriptures, especially the ones that you're not inclined to underline. 
Drill them into your heart. Drill them into your head. Rehearse them. Talk about them with other people who are on the same path as you are toward Jesus. As your pastor, I cannot emphasize enough how much you need more than what I give you on Sundays, how much you need more than podcasts and blogs and Christian books, how much you need more than the Puritans. You need the Bible itself. You need the Scriptures speaking straight to you as the Holy Spirit operates in your heart every single day, I dare say, as much as possible. Because the only way to learn how to spot a counterfeit is, is to become so intimately acquainted with the real thing that, that, that you, you notice even, even this, the tiniest little detail when, it, when it's off. You know, a friend of mine who is, has a public, a very public ministry reached out a couple of weeks ago and said, Scott, I fear that in the current time, in the t- current place, and in our culture in particular, we are facing a crisis of discernment. Because what Amos said centuries ago is also true now for our culture. There is a famine for hearing the word of the Lord. So dust off the Bible. Get into it so it will get into you. Learn to spot a counterfeit by getting to know the real dollar bill. Learn the difference between Camus and three-buck chuck by having your palate trained by the truth. And what you'll find in there is Jesus, who is full of grace and truth, who is never drunk, who never falls to the left or the right of the horse, who's neither a bully, you know, who's all Pharisee, or a codependent enabler who is all Sadducee. He's never overly rigid. He's never overly loose. He is perfectly healthy, the great physician who wants to preserve your health and to restore your, your health. Thanks be to God. And what a treat that we get now. At the end of the sermon, as I wrap up, to to put into actual literal practice what Jesus has been encouraging us, to take in fruit that comes from the healthy tree as we take in the fruit of the vine and the bread and the cup. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, it is no small thing that the table we are about to approach now contains fruit from the healthy tree that is Jesus. Your body in the bread, your blood in the cup, would you nourish us? Would you strengthen us? Would you teach us even at this table now how to spot the real thing so that we can also spot the counterfeits? Because the condition of our souls depends on it. Father, set apart, consecrate this bread and this cup. As you've promised, would you be present with us now in a very real way as we nourish our bodies with the bread and the cup, would you nourish our souls as well. In Jesus' name, amen.